Welcome back to the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. I'm here with, I'm sorry. (laughs) Welcome back to the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. I'm Sarah and I'm here with my co-host, Stacy. Hello. Kevin. Hey, everybody. And Darren. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest with us. We have Alicia Crosby with us, and we are going to talk about, um, we're continuing our theme around speak up and speak out, where we are speaking with individuals who have things to say, um, individuals that are representative of the LGBT community or um, people of color that just want to speak on whatever issues um, really just fire fire in their heart. Um, and so that's what we're here to do. Do I need to do anything over? I think you're fine. I, I'll, I'll run with that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, today I'd love to bring on a very special friend to me who has been um, a, I always love using my little Christianese words, a co-laborer in the gospel for a number of years. I always trigger everybody when I do that, but it's okay. Why'd you Um, do that? Diane. Do it. Right. Like the face is all ready. They're like, (laughs) oh gosh. Um, But yeah, um, this friend has been uh, somebody who's always upped my game. Um, Everything from how I teach anti-racism to completely blowing my mind about what inclusivity could be. Um, it is my friend, Alicia T. Crosby, who has, um, gosh, I'm not even sure how we met right now. Well, but, I can tell you. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna give you a second to tell you. I'm, I'm gonna finish, uh, bragging <laughs> on you a little bit, but, uh, and it's, I should have written this down, but, uh, Alicia is a, is it correct to say recent or upcoming uh, Duke. Oh, we can say it is in the past. It is I have done. done it. I am finished. Ooh. A graduate. <laughs> and and what was your what was your degree? And I am a master of theological study. Yes. 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 I've I've mastered that. We, we, <laughs> love, we love the mastery. Mastered. Mastered. I'm not just practicing. No, I've mastered, I've mastered that. Yes. <laughs> um, and a a community organizer and someone who just has this amazing amount of empathy and care with us, with just a, this amazing, unique pastoral gift that just resonates. So anytime you talk to to this woman, it's like talking to a warm hug <laughs> of your soul. Your soul is going to be hugged. So um, we have a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to you hearing all about my friends. So um, Alicia, welcome to, well, you know, we've, we've already heard your voice, but welcome to the Thank you. Thank you. I am super pumped to be with y'all. Um, so this whole like podcast collective, are, they're just like sweet as pie. Y'all couldn't know this um, because you're on the other side side of the podcast you're listening but they have just welcomed me in and made me feel like I've been here for however long they've been doing this and this is before Darren got on and like Darren and I go way back so I will tell y'all the story of when I first met Darren Calhoun Uh it was pride it was pride 2015 oh was it it was pride 2015 this was actually the year before we did make love louder 
but you and I met for the first time out there in, in counter protest. And that was the first time that we had met. I had heard about you for some time before, um, but I finally had the honor and the privilege of meeting my co co-laborer in the vineyard of, of God or Christ or however folks be saying it. Um, but we met out there, like, seriously, like, loving folks and standing in solidarity with other LGBTQ people of color um, who, you know, were just trying to live. And you had a bunch of bigots behind us trying to stop that living and that flourishing. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I met my Darren. That's but what, that's six wow. years ago. Right. We met on the front lines. On that the front lines. So in it. In it. With our little signs and our hugs. Yes. We, and then we, we made a the thing. Hugs. We did. Then we made a thing together. It's called Make Love Louder. It's one of the proudest things that I've ever done in my life. Amen. Amen. Um, would you Would you like to describe what Make Love Louder is slash was? Yeah. Lord. <laughs> So Make Love Louder was, um, it was a counter protest that was intentionally cheeky <laughs> because of course it's going to be cheeky. Me, Darren, and our friend, Jason, <laughs> Jason, feel free. Shout out to you, Jay. Love you. Um, but we using the, the vehicle of um, my old nonprofit, um, which Darren was on the board for Center for Inclusivity, started a pr- counter protest at Chicago, the Chicago Pride Parade. So at Prides, at, you know, a number of gatherings for different um, reasons across the countries, you have protesters who come out with pretty hateful signs, right? It's the God hates, eh, insert marginalized people group. Um, and just saying horrible, awful things and disrupting the revelry and the care and the affirmation and celebration of the day. Well, a group of us, you know, if we want to use churchy language, shepherded by myself, um, Darren, and our friend Jason, were going out there um, to make love louder. We taught people how to use love as a de-escalation tactic. What does it mean when you celebrate people? What does it mean when you, you know, use consensual hugs or high fives or other forms of engagement as a means of disrupting negative toxic energy. And this is something that we did in the legacy of others, right? So you've got the free mom hugs, shout out to Sarah Cunningham. I'm saying it right. Sarah and the, the free, the free mom hugs crew, they do something similar. There was another organization that's since passed who did something in the past, um, that was along the same lines. But that being said, there are people who are out there who are finding ways to embody love in creative ways. And for this, it's a direct action for us, but we taught people how to use direct action as a forum for some as ministry, because there were churches and mosques and and temples and like Mm -hmm. all these community groups who would send folks out there and they did it in the name of religion, as well as people who just did it for love's sake. And so, yeah, it was dope. Um, I mean, we haven't had a pride parade in some years because of COVID, well, in a year. Um, but there are folks who want to live into that legacy when things resume. We'll see what happens. But I mean, it was it was dope while it lasted. And I hope that it continues on in whatever ways that, you know, it can and as people see fit. Indeed. It's so it's always so neat to hear somebody else tell the story of something that was the same place that same place I was, but you know, you always see it different. I'm like, oh yeah, it was. We were teaching direct act nonviolent action. Mm-hmm. And um, because I, I would always get caught up on the part where um we were 
even though this was an interface effort, we were embodying being the body of Christ, right? Like there were these these people who came in the name of Christ, these mm-hmm. anti-gay, anti-everybody Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and we showed up as the body of Christ mm-hmm. and we're like, we are going to make love louder than mm-hmm. hate. We are going to get people dancing and get people giving high fives and, and these hugs and and it was it was so powerful because mm-hmm. that spot in the parade was so known for exactly what was going to happen there that mm-hmm. the first few years people would just turn their backs as they rode by on the parade floats mm-hmm. or as they marched that um, the middle fingers just right. the giving back of energy that was being cast off mm-hmm. and again like these are the people on bullhorns who are trying to get you to taunt them trying to get you to get you to yell back at them um and what I always share with people is like they're they're part of their the way that they work is that they were trying to get people to assault them, you know, which mm-hmm. is something as little as spitting or throwing a bottle of water, mm-hmm. which would create legal um, implications for the person who did it, who they tormented or, or pro- provoked to anger. Absolutely. Um, and then they would settle with them out of court, which then becomes an income stream for mm-hmm. them to continue their hate message around the country and so our action interrupted their money because by the time Mm -hmm. people by the time like it became standard for people to see us there not only had everyone stopped like responding in anger and instead would like party and dance and kiss in the streets Mm -hmm. but also because no one was engaging them to the point of wrath Mm-hmm. They didn't make any arrests. But, nope. You know. And that is my one of my proudest things of this proudest things. And that there were zero, like absolutely zero arrests in a heavily, probably the most heavily policed area of the Pride Parade. Right. We we taught people how to de-escalate. We gave them, we nurtured the skill in them. And that's what they would do, like our volunteers. And we'd have hundreds of them come out every year. Mm-hmm. People knew you'd see them in the shirts. Eventually we built out the rainbow. Like that was the vision. <laughs> but um, they'd be in these multicolored shirts. Like every year it was a different color saying make love loud or huge, like white print on like a colored, you know, background, purple, green, yellow, pink, blue we just didn't get to no we didn't we didn't get to pink we uh no we the red we had the red ones we didn't get to orange orange would have been this last year Mm -hmm. before the pandemic um but we we did this and there were no arrests and like when i'm telling you this is heavily policed it would be a double barricade where the police would stand in between and so things Uh, like the shoulder to shoulder shoulder to shoulder and so we would do things intentionally like hey you know what like, you know, I am very much of the defund and abolish police um, persuasion, yeah. but police in this case are people too, and they're not asked to be there. So do you need earplugs? Do you need water? Are you okay? Like, we know this is a lot of hate and you are being forced to be here because of the occupation you chose has you be in some places you may not want to be sometimes. And for many of them, it would, they're like, are you serious? Is this really happening? Like folks would be upset. And it's like, well, what do you need? Because right now, like in and this goes to what Darren's speaking about this being a ministerial effort. It's like my job there as an organizer, but then also as a minister is to make sure that all are covered. So it's like, you can be that asshole up on the, the mic. I mean, I'm not going to give you a lot of energy, but these other people, however, who are not openly antagonistic, um, even though they could be provoked to anger, should some other things be, you know, uneven, how do we also make sure that you're good so our people are good? 
Exactly. I'm yeah, it was a dope app. It was it was dope. It was I, dope. I I'm like I'm just I'm loving it and as I'm like absorbing it. I'm I'm just visualizing this and I'm I'm curious um, if you guys can speak to like you started to speak a little bit, but like a positive interaction that you had maybe with a protester um, because of this effort and like what, I just want to speak more to just like how these tactics can be used on the, you know, the folks that again, were there with an agenda to cause harm. There are so many, like, I mean, you got the people who came look for us, like they come looking for us after a while. They're mm-hmm. like, you're back. And it was just such joy. And it's like the people whose faces you get used to seeing every year. And you don't see them but bunch of years. I mean, Chicago is the, the third largest city in the country. There's no way that these people, you're going to know them. But they they came to expect us. So they knew they could come and give their, like, get their little t-shirt. And we gave the stuff out for free, right? We did our fundraising behind the scenes. And if anybody wanted to on site, like, help contribute to the ongoings of this efforts, by all means, like, we gave the means to do so but t-shirts were free we had water we had snacks we had earplugs we had first aid kits like this really is a direct action right we're making sure that like all these things are covered and you know making sure we took into consideration different types of like you know like dietary needs and so I think one of my favorite moments was um this maybe was like our third year doing it we had a group of teenagers, right? Like teens, preteens who came up. And I was like, yo, y'all want some snacks? They're like, for free? <laughs> like, I was like, yeah. And so we were right in front of like a convenience store. I won't say its name, you know, copyright and such. But we were right in front of a convenience store who actually would racially profile um, young black and brown folks. Mm-hmm. And these were, it was a group of young, like black kids. And I was like, yo, y'all want some snacks? They're free. You don't got to go up in there. Don't spend your money. Like, this is like free 99, take whatever you want. And they were just like this lit up. And it's just like, they were kids. It was just kids being kids. And instead of like, you know, the kind of steely exterior that like those of us who grew up in a city have to have where you just like walking down the street kind of hard, like you got to see like the merriment, right? Like them just being little, like y'all are 13, 14, 15, and somebody just gave you a bunch of Doritos and some Sour Patch Kids. And like, that's the stuff that I would live for. It's like those little moments where people could just be where they could just like not have to hold up the armor that they walk around with the rest of their lives. And we had those, you know, those moments with adults too. Um, Darren, I will hush and let you tell one of your stories, but I have one that relates to you um, after you oh, share some. I want, I want, I'm want. i wondering if it's going to be the same. because It um, might be. <laughs> I remember one year, not, I, I, I took a picture with this family, but um, as I said, they they would always try to pick at you and be very specific and, um, Pride in 2020 is a is a is an event with all kinds of age ranges, all kinds of people. Like it's not just quote unquote the queer community in, in scare quotes. Um, and I remember there was a young mom um, and her very very young daughter, probably two or three years old. And part of my regalia for the uh, event is that I always show up with these white wings that that. Um, I could like lift up and I had little sticks built into them so I could like 
I'd have like a 12 foot wingspan when I, cause I'm six, two anyway. So <laughs> I would be able to lift up my arms and physically block out the signs of the protesters in the most fabulous way, because the wind would be blowing. My hair would be blowing the wind, you know, like it's just a whole thing. Y'all, it was a sight. Let me tell you, <laughs> we got pictures. They're so beautiful. It's so much fun. Um, but, but I remember, uh, as the as the the the, the hateful protesters were, were on the bullhorn and saying every every derogatory word you can for sex and for for genitals, like there was this little girl, two or three years old, who was with her mom, and she was like visibly frightened by what was going on, and so um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, so I ended up. Uh, like just saying hi to the little girl and then started chatting with her mom and her mom said she wanted to take a picture with me. And so, uh, so we took a picture together and I'm like, got my wings up and like all of a sudden she's like smiling and happy and like, I would lead like chants. So like one of the chants when they would start getting really hateful, I get everybody in the crowd singing, I love you, you love me, you know, you, you know, just anything. And it was, and she was like singing along and it was just like, oh, like this is, this is what it's about. Like mm-hmm. literally transforming that fearful scary moment into an empowered moment Mm -hmm. um, a moment where she didn't have to worry about where she was or what was going on feet away from where she where she was standing Mm -hmm. and yeah like that's still like that little delicate moment always just touches me um yeah what what were you gonna bring up that was not the one but that is a tender story actually I don't think I knew about that one yeah. I don't know how, because it's like so iconic. And right. I like, it's just, no. Okay. So it's, it's actually, I'm going to throw two more stories. One is Go connected to something you just said, the, the chanting. Mm-hmm. Our second year. So we, we eventually ended up buying like, you know, amplified equipment. We like had our blow horns. That's what you call them, right? Bullhorn. The megaphones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Megaphones. Mm-hmm. We had the megaphones and speakers and whatever, but that came through the donations that we were able to like acquire year after year. But before that, all we had was me and Darren just being real loud. <laughs> and so we would just yell and get people going in these chants. And this is like one of the most beautiful moments of my life. And I still get choked up um, thinking about it. But the folks were just going on with all types of vitriol. And this was like right after the, um, the, the shootings down in Florida. This was after the Pulse Massacre. Mm. It was that year. And I remember we were starting to chant Make Love Louder to drown it out because they were saying some really, I mean, it was some of the worst of the worst that they were saying. But I remember there was a point, not only where you couldn't hear them anymore, just out of like just pure human sound, no amplification, but just dozens of people, make love louder, make love louder. It was so loud, it bounced off the buildings and you felt it in your bones. And I was like, yes, this is what it is. This is what, this is what, this is it. This is like, we're making love louder. Love is literally surrounding our bodies. You can't hear this amplified system behind us. Like we doing this. So that was one of my other favorites. But the other one with you, Darren, was actually um, a mom wrote us after, um, I think it was maybe year four of Make Love Louder, year three or four. Um, And it's because she had saw you signing I Love You 
Um, so Darren Head, like throughout that time, was making sure he was like using sign language um, to express love to folks because like we really did work to try to be ex- inclusive in different ways. Um, and there's this gorgeous picture of Darren, like somewhere in our archives, um, of him having like I, the "I love you" sign in ASL up. And this mom shared that it meant so much to her seeing this these people one but this person being intent to sign because she had a deaf child and she saw that there are people in the world who would not only make love louder but make it louder in accessible ways and yeah like it's these moments that just I'm so proud of myself I'm proud of Darren I'm proud of all of the folks who would come out every year those who we knew and those we didn't and like you know I mean this really was like you know, a really diverse group of people. Like you'd have everyone from, you know, us to churches, like a bunch of folks from like Urban Village Church in Chicago would come out, people from Masjid al-Rabia, um, Heart, um, Women and Girls, which is a, a Muslim organization doing like sexual and reproductive health for, for, for girls and, and women. Like you had all these organizations and churches and faith communities and just regular regular people just out there because making love louder is what mattered to them and we'd cover one another with love and it was great and now i'm about to be crying in the club (laughs) oh gosh I, I, i it's so funny i use that picture all the time um and um i forget about the the impact the ripples that that came from those moments um but I'll never forget reading that email because I'm like, yes, like so much for me in my life is about like helping people feel loved and included and feeling like somebody gives a damn about them. And like, I couldn't tell you that woman's name. I don't know the baby's name, but I do know that we got an email because we did something in solidarity. Yes, with with others, but also for ourselves. Like we are black LGBTQ people. Like we we are different parts of those letters, mm-hmm. but we up in there. <laughs> and for us doing this thing for our community and ourselves, it meant so much to so many others. And so it just, it was, it's a gift that continues to give. Yeah. Oh gosh. Now, yeah, I'm all, I'm all messed up now, but now <laughs> that that story is going to why, uh, for those who are listening, I have this, um, neon led neon. I love you symbol. That's part of my little background here. Mm. And now that's going to be part of the story of why that exists. Um, <laughs> retroactively. It was right. There. Retroactively. It was, there. it was, it was destined. It was you just cool. need a little bit of help unearthing that story again. And I do like, I literally it's, I've, I've kind of been blessed to have this life that's full of moments and full of 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 just things of impact and stuff that you know part of it's the trauma where I'm a little disconnected from some things and things fall into the depths of my memory Mm -hmm. but also like yeah like I'm 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 doing this thing where I'm trying to like actively record the moments and the accomplishments Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff because I've been on such a non-traditional path you know like same I get Hello. it. <laughs> this is why um, we've been friends for so long because <laughs> because you need community, and I think that like this is an important thing for folks who are church leaders or religious leaders and whatever thing, and however they construe it to like understand is like so many of us just in life in general are longing for community, but being in ministry is one of the loneliest paths. 
And being yeah. in ministry when you're queer is lonelier and when you're queer and you're a person of color, it's just like, good God, like who are my people? And we all find ourselves asking that questions and every now and then you find some people who can be your people and you keep them. And the other side, you find people who shouldn't be your people. And then you, you know, Gotta find ways go. to exit those relationships because some folks aren't trying to be well. They're not trying to be healed. And like, it's not our work to heal them or help them be well for themselves. You just give them up to God and go about your way. Yes. Kiss them up to God. Yeah. <laughs> just God bless them. Bless you. Deuces. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, some, I mean, I, I, I want to share a little bit more about what the center for inclusivity was. Um, but I, I remember specifically um, one of the ways that my mind was blown and I still carry with me to this day is that I think it's easy for us to like whatever, wherever we are in, in figuring out what inclusion looks like or figuring out what diversity looks like, we kind of measure it by what we knew before. And so we just go, oh, yeah, I know diversity now. Um, for example, as somebody who's black in the United States, I was like, yeah, I know about blackness. And then I, but growing up in Chicago, um, I didn't realize there was so much more Black for me to learn about. So the first time I went to New York, it was like, oh, oh, wait, oh, wait, there's a whole lot of more Black. There's this Caribbean Black and they're continental oh, yeah. Black and, <laughs> and all this oh, other yeah. Black that's the nowhere diaspora. close to what I knew and of Black the- in Chicago. <laughs> And it, it's, and it truly is different. So I'm a New Yorker whose family comes from the South and from the Caribbean. And so what Darren is saying is true because in reverse, like when I went to Chicago, I was just like, so are all of y'all got people from Mississippi or like- Chicago like, is a where, bunch of Southern folks with coats like, on. That is- <laughs> But yep. it is. It is. And I love it because it connects me to that part of my family. But <laughs> I'm like, diaspora, where you at? <laughs> hiding in some pocket of the city somewhere <laughs> in, the one neighborhood, the same, in the one right, neighborhood in the one neighborhood yeah. we digress we digress <laughs> <laughs> but but what i was what i was getting at is that um you know coming coming in as somebody who is already at that point speaking about diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. and then walking into a gathering that um alicia was facilitating where there was a woman who was uh who's muslim and um wore a full hijab and i'm probably not calling the right uh term for that but um and the conversation was her sharing um how she's polyamorous and queer and i was like wait 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 (laughs) because in my head there's a single story of what it means to be a black muslim woman and none of it included queer or being poly and I was just like wait 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 I haven't thought about these things these there's there's intersections that were completely out of my purview and here Alicia was is like yeah let's talk about you know like just making space for people to talk about their experiences around faith, gender, and sexuality. And, you know, those are my favorite ones, some of my favorite topics. So it was just like, oh, okay. Let's, let's really do this intersectional thing. Let's really do this inclusivity thing. And it, and it expanded my entire mindset about what inclusivity could look like. Um, so Alicia, tell us, tell us a little bit about what that 
what the heart of that work was and how, you know, and maybe connected to, to what you're doing these days. Yeah. Uh, my CFI days. So <laughs> like, it's so wild, like looking back at like something that was so much a part of your life. And like, when you're no longer in a season where like, where just, it doesn't exist anymore. We actually closed Center for Inclusivity in 2019. But um, this was the, the the brainchild of myself and my friend um, slash forever work husband, Jason Brilbury. So Jay and I, we met when I was a grad student the first go round. So while I have recently thrown up the, the deuces at Duke, I used to be a grad student at Loyola University Chicago. That's where I mastered social justice. Um, so there's lots of mastering in my background. Well, the masters. Masters of the universe. That's an 80s throwback joke. (laughs) 80s babies. (laughs) But um, so Jay and I, like we're having these conversations um, just in meeting one another while I was in school. um, And we talked about like what it could, like just what we were seeing in the world, right? Like people having to pick and choose parts of who they were and like what it could mean if they had a space to land where they didn't have to do that choosing anymore. And then it was like the May of my first year in grad school of the two-year program. Jay hits me up. He's like, hey, so I quit my job. I've got an idea for a thing. I'd love to talk to you about it. And so my background at that point in time, like, I mean, there's a lot of things that I've done in my 35 years, but like I have a background in youth development. And he originally like reached out to me and Darren, I don't know if you know this, but he originally reached out to me to actually start a youth portion of of the Center for Inclusivity, and he's like, "I got an idea." Y'all make for- that happen so quickly. <laughs> he's like, "I've got an idea for this thing. It'd be like kind of a community thing called Center for Inclusivity, and I would love if you would be my intern." I was like, "Sure." I, like we should do this, this, and this, this, and this. By the time we had the, the the meeting and had built out like all this stuff, I emailed him when I got home. I'm like, I feel like I'm taking more like more agency than an intern would. So maybe we need to like discern because I was in a space where I would use discern like that back in them days. Maybe we need to discern together like what my role should be in after graduation. So he's like, I don't got to discern nothing. You need to be my partner. And yes, literally that's quick how- action of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's, that's literally how the Center for Inclusivity is born, is was over co- coffee, me being kind of ballsy in the way that I go about moving in this life and be like, let's talk about this because I'm doing more work. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so we set out to create a space where people- could have conversations across the lines of perceived difference. And the reason why we use that that, that language of perception is that there isn't tension or perceived tension is what it was. There isn't tension or there doesn't have to be tension between lines of identity, right? You can be queer and poly and religious. You can be atheistic and deeply empathetic and deeply grounded in community. And these things don't have to be held apart and they don't have to be held apart in community. And so Jay and I had this vision and we built it out. And like this, we basically taught people how to talk to one another. <laughs> like, yeah. and we we topically on a weekly basis. And then later on, we um, moved it to bi-weekly just because of the demand on it, because people were inviting us around the country. And more specifically, they were inviting me because the reality is, is that when you talk about like faith and sexuality, 
from the perspective of queerness, you don't see a lot, ton of Black folks doing it, and you really mm-hmm. don't see a ton of women. And so me being a Black queer woman, because women, a woman, I, I will get my subject <laughs> Wins, verb tense. Women's, 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 women's. <laughs> but being, you know, being a woman, um, it created space where folks in trying to, yes, meet their diversity goals, but understanding that I had a unique perspective that to share in the world, um, that I should be in those places. So yeah, it was balancing, holding these weekly and bi-weekly meetings and eventually monthly meetings in Chicago um, with traveling around the country, teaching people how to have these conversations in their own context. And so that relates to now and that I do that, but in fuller form, because at some point we realized as an organization, there were certain things that are a part of running a nonprofit that was honestly holding me back in my work. And so we sat and discerned because discernment, yeah, we can use it in a cheeky way, but sometimes communities do come together and they have deep conversations about like the impact of what's happening to people. My board, again, that Darren was a part of saw that I was running myself ragged. Y'all, 2018 was a hard year. I was bed bound out of sickness, like had a whole eye surgery for the first four months of the year. And they're like, you can't do this no more. So you need to close this nonprofit and focus on you and do what you do in greater measure as a consultant. Because ultimately, yes, people believe in the center, but they believe in the center because of you. And so since 2019, that's what I've done. Um, we did one more Make Love Louder. That was my deal. It's like, I want to get us to one more. Like I had a lot of stuff going on in life, um, but Make Love Louder was my goal. It's like, we do this, we close out the books, give the IRS little things that they ask for, and be out. And then I made the transition to North Carolina, but I have continued to help um, organizations, institutions, communities of varying sorts figure out how to not just communicate with one another, but to do so in a way that fosters genuine community and stops that bifurcation of self. Bring who all of who you are to the table and create the protective space around you um, where you can do this fully. Because I don't believe in safety. I think safety is a whole ass lie. Um, but there are agreements that we can come into together where we are protective. And so I, that's the work that I've done. And I've done it for churches. I've done it for universities, for nonprofits, queer orgs, race-based orgs. And so ultimately justice is my goal. So where anti-racism work is cool, anti-oppression is more of where I'm at because justice is what I want to see come. And that's it in a nutshell. Boom. (laughs) That's awesome. I am curious as to, like, we've talked a little bit about your adult life and what you've been doing, but I'm curious as to what your childhood was like, your upbringing, your time you spent, if any time in the church as a child, and and then also um, how you identify as an LGBTQ person um, and when did you figure that all out when, you know, that sort of thing, you know, your whole life story, basically. That's you know, how did you know this? <laughs> she uh, wants your autobiography. It's just one of those things that we normally ask our guests, like, what's your story? You know, tell us a little bit about yourself. And yeah. we kind of with you right now, we just skipped right straight into your adulthood. So yeah, we can kick so. it back to childhood. So I am a pastor's kid. Shout out to the PKs. Hey. Awesome. Um, I am a PK. I am like a third or fourth generation minister who really, really didn't want to be one. (laughs) 
let me tell you, because like I always got in trouble in, in the conventional, like traditional church. And so one of the things that's distinct about my adult personhood is like, I am very much like that ecumenical, like Christian who's a part of like that wilderness set. Like John the Baptist is like one of my four parents. Like, give me the outdoors, give me the riverside. Like, I don't bump your buildings. Like he was like the rigid, the, the OGPK, right? He's a priest kid. And so, but he, so he knew how the system worked. He knew the ins and out of it probably had been a part of whatever, you know, formation and was like, you know what? The spirit of God is moving me beyond the places. Cause there's a lot of people who y'all say can't be here, who aren't a part of the family of God. And so he went to the river where they were at. And that's where I like to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like to be where the people are. I feel like that's something from Disney. Want to see, see them dancing? Little Mermaid. Yeah, yeah there we go. Well, yeah. So it's like that. But like, I like to be where the people are. Like, literally. Um, shout out again to 80s kids. Little Mermaid. That was like Hello. 80 something. Golden uh, era. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I have like a really interesting background in that. I said I'm ecumenical. Like, I really tell people that I'm ecumenically promiscuous because I've been around. Yeah. Um, That's a term I haven't heard. I like that. <laughs> I, it's, it's a ripoff of something Kelly Meek and Deha has shared with me. Um, but yeah, ecumenically promiscuous sounds about right because I was formed in the Black Baptist Church while also going to an evangelical Christian school. Oh. That was a whole thing. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but then I then I got in with the black evangelicals, like you know, that was a, a portion of life. Um, my dad was a pastor at a church for a while before the black evangelical moment. Um, but then when I got to college, let's see, I'm gonna take y'all real quick through it. First, I was in an Anglican church because I was deeply repressed and they were anti-LGBTQ and I knew that they were. Um, and so I, they were the, they were the holy ones because the Episcopalians went off the rails for me back then. So I was in the Anglican church. I went to a white Pentecostal church. You, you see, I put a qualifier of white on it. It was not, it was not us, mm-hmm. but they're yeah. cool people. I still talk to a lot of them. Then it was an, a non-denominational, that means evangelical, evangelical <laughs> church. Southern Baptist most of the time. Southern Baptist. <laughs> a little bit, but like these were some, these were the breakoffs from the Pentecostal joint. So uh, they like, they got with it. They got, they got, they got happy as my grandmother would call them. Oh, yeah. Vineyard um, people then. <laughs> they were, they were more of the vineyard sorts. Then I actually worked, <laughs> worshipped and ministered in a, uh, a non-denominational evangelical church that um, I found out like was, low-key Baptist because I worked for them and I saw who saw my checks. Um, after that, I hung out with the Nazarenes for a little bit, kicked it with the reform kids with that whole Acts, whatever the hell community, Acts 29, Acts, oh, Acts 29, yeah. Acts 29. There was a Acts 29 church I was at for a little while. I went to like, oh gosh, what do these people call themselves? Wow. Your uh, body count is bang. Look, right? It's up there. I'm telling y'all, I get around. Um, there was a little stint at um, a, another reformed church. I forget its name right now. Um, before I ended up at an evangelical church who that actually was really healing for me. Um, shout out to Jose Humphreys. He's still the homie. Um, but that was the first time that I saw a church could be something other than non-hierarchical. Um, and there, that's a, like a church up in Harlem. Then when I got to Chicago, I was um, at Urban Village before I realized, hey, hey, Guess what? Institutional church isn't for me, which is why I have to keep leaving all of these different spaces. And the spirit of God is calling me to something 
else. And in the beginning, I was really like, I was like, ah, burn a church. A church is terrible. Because there's a lot of trauma that happened in those places for me. Um, But then I came to a place of healing where I realized, oh no, I don't got to burn it all down. I mean, some of these things do need to like be like set a flame. But others with holy fire, let me let me qualify holy that. Fire. The spirit can do her good work. Um, yes. yes, spirit. <laughs> don't don't go with the kerosene matches, y'all. No, we don't need mm-hmm. arson on there. Um, but let this like seriously, the spirit needs to clean out some things. But other churches are beautiful and give people the routine and ritual and things that are edifying to their souls in a way that like liberation and conversation and like variety are freeing spiritually for me and oh this also happened while I was at a Catholic institution and I now just graduated because Loyola's Loyola's Jesuit and so I was mm-hmm. deep in with the Catholics and I just graduated from a Methodist institution so when I tell y'all I've been around I'm not joking <laughs> I know the church um but because I know the church means I can speak intimately to its violences which I've done in my adult work. Um, but these are things I started witnessing as a kid. So I just did my thesis on um, Christian religious violence and trauma with through a racialized lens. Um, I've got lots of thoughts and other identity constructs, but the 60 pages I handed was twice what they asked me. And it's going to end up being a book at some point. Okay. Um, Above and beyond. <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got butts. <laughs> such an achiever. I tell you. Overachiever. God bless me. I was like, what trauma did that come from? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> um, I, again, I've seen a lot in the different places, but it starts, you know, for me being like a kid. So Stacey, and you're speaking about like, you know, kind of religiously how I was formed. I mean, I dealt with, you know, looking at the, the trauma is kind of one of my, my sweet spots, talking about it helping other people talk about it because it's like a thing that so many people experience but don't have the language to like to name it but one of my first religious traumas comes when I'm seven years old I'm seven in my black baptist church missionary baptist to be more specific and we had an open table well our pastor the founding pastor of the church died new pastor comes on he is like cleaning house and and doing away with things that he feels that are ungodly, which included the open table for us. And so they put preconditions on baptism, which I didn't have the language at seven to call it coercive, but that's how I felt because communion was my favorite. It's still like, you know, the Eucharist still is my favorite because it's about like, it doesn't matter what is, who brought what at the end of the day, it's like the table is where everybody gets to eat. Right. So, but at seven, I felt that. Um, and by open table, uh, you're talking about communion traditions where yeah, you don't, where everybody can come. There's no preconditions put on it. Just anyone who wants to take part in like in the communion can. And so I remember that change in and I went in my little Bible cause he's tried to tie it to baptism and went in my little red Bible and I'm just like, where is it? Where is it? I couldn't find it anywhere. And, um, and so I went to the pastor. I was like, so I looked for this thing that you said that people have to be baptized to take communion and I can't find it. So I'm gonna need you to show me where it is. And if you can't show me, then maybe you need to tell the people something else. I, I, I've i been bold all my life, y'all. Come on now. <laughs> and I wish I had it when I was young, but go ahead. But I would get in trouble. Like I'm telling y'all, like from that to working in the mega church, you know, that's another, another big source of trauma. 
Like, you know, I had a moment that I actually described in my thesis of the first time I physically had, like, was triggered. Um, and I remember, like, so it was a, it was a mega church. Like, so where big artists come in, Hezekiah Walker actually came in. Um, and I was an operations manager for this church. And I remember Hez was leading folks in a round of, I, I need you to survive, mm. which only within the last few years, that song is not triggering to me. Because I saw my abusers, like people who were trying to withhold vacation days from me, you know, in order for me to work more. People who, you know, after I got in a car accident, threw money on a table telling me what I needed to do better about my job. When instead of me going to the hospital, like I should have after an accident, I went back to work in order to make sure that they got an event pulled off right. Wow. You know, folks who knew I was not leaving the church until two in the morning and had to travel two and three hours back to Harlem on the train when people could have given me a ride, they didn't. Like, but my abusers are like, I love you. I need you to survive. I'm like, you're all liars. Mm. And I remember the triggering in my body. Like my body froze. I started having rapid breathing. You know, I felt panic. I wanted to run, but I was stuck in the middle of an aisle. And eventually I was able to make my way out. And because I was so a high ranking like leader, both in ministry, as well as an employee of the church, people kept trying to talk to me, but I'm having, I'm triggered. Like I'm having like an active event, like where my trauma is like, my trauma is all the way activated. And because of the violence that I endured at these people's hands, spiritual and emotional. And, you know, this is one of, you know, it's it's just one of those things looking back, like that was another one of those moments that made me when I was in a place of healing enough, want to speak out because so many people have these things happen to them. They get exploited or abused by churches. And like, you know, I have a lot of abuse, but some of the abuses that I've researched are far more grievous than anything that I had gone through. Like, you know, and it's not about putting pitting things up against each other, but there's, you know, it's one thing when people treat you bad, but it's another when they literally hit you with religious objects. Like there's a physical nature of abuse that I was spared of, but that others have endured, but we got to talk about like this stuff. And so, you know, going back to being a kid, Like I learned to speak out then and me cultivating my voice and like by honestly God's grace, like that voice not being broken by things because trust me, shit has tried. People have tried, but I'm able to use my voice in such a way where I can help others push back and form those communities they're looking for while also calling out the nature of violence. Um, But, you know, part of the violence was me not being able to come out when I was young. I I knew I wasn't straight. I, I felt I wasn't straight probably about 13 or 14. I knew I wasn't by 16. And I tried to come out. And, you know, you do like many kids, like I came out to like a couple of friends first. I tested the waters. And that was cool, right? Like, you know, like my like Muslim best friend at the time, like he was like real, like, woo, yeah, you're doing it. And a couple of other homies. And then I tried to come out to my family. And I started with my dad. And my dad's like, but you're not bisexual. I, I use queer and pansexual now, but then bi is all I knew. And then he's like, but you're not like, that's not what we believe. Like that's not of God. And I was like, that's not what we believe. That's not of God. So I'm not. <laughs> and part of why I can say this and I can identify it being my father is because a part of our healing means that he's since like, you know, apologized to use Christianese. He's repented. Um, oh, and it's yeah. like super celebratory of me and my fiance, who's a woman. And he's actually told me, he's like Lee, which is what he calls me. He's like, Lee, tell people. He's like, it's going to help people like grow and heal. 
them knowing what we've been through and like what we've come from to where we got, tell the people, tell them our story because this is our stories and you have my consent. So yeah, that's a little bit about little me. And oh, so when I finally came out, so I finally came out because, okay, I became like affirming of LGBT people more generally in my early 20s, but I didn't come out publicly until I turned 30. Like I spent my 29th year coming out slowly but surely to like trusted friends and some family members. Um, But I came out to my full family in May of 2016. And then, yeah, and I came out to the world that Pride Month. So I've, I'm, I call myself a toddler queer. I'm not quite yes. a baby, but like, you know, I can eat Cheerios on my own. I don't like, you know, I, I'm, t- I'm a toddler queer. I got a lot to learn. Like, I don't know everything, but I've learned something. I can speak coherent sentences. Yes. Come on, walk with a waddle. Right? Right. I know my ABCs. Wow. So yeah, that's it. A little bit, a little bit of my story. A little bit. <laughs> that's good. Thank you. I'm processing so, like, just so much as you're speaking um, about church trauma because we've mm-hmm. talked about that quite a bit on this podcast, just from various different lenses. Um, but I'm curious. You're still. I, essentially trusting or like how how did you I guess um find your way to like trust the church or did you in in the process of healing from your trauma because I think some people um including like myself get to a point where it's like I just want to walk out of the church and I never want to trust any any person that says Christian ever ever again um but then there's also other people who still feel connected and want to feel connected to the church, but also don't feel um, safe. And I love what you, what you said about being just like feeling protected. So I'm just wondering if you could speak a little more about what that process was like for you with, within, with healing from your trauma, but still kind of being connected to these Christian and church circles. Yeah. So, and I'm going to just say it because I was told I can say it how I feel it. So I'm going to do that. I think one of the things that's helped me just realize is just some people ain't shit and they ain't never going to be shit. Like that's it. And that includes Christians. Actually it's more often than not Christians because 65% of Americans as per the Pew, Pew research are identified as Christians, right? The vast majority of people identify as Christians in the United States of America, which means that when we see fuck shit happens, it oftentimes is Christian behind it just by nature of the statistics. Um, so I think that that was one of the things that was healing for me is to realize that some people just ain't shit and like, and some people will, I don't know, it's, it, it's, it's on levels, right? My healing has come in waves because even though my church trauma is at this point, like 25 years, some odd years old, right? Like the very first iterations of it come in childhood because like some of it is also the indoctrination that like we receive in our families. Mm-hmm. So like some of my research talks about like, you know, what are the different um, spaces in which violence occurs? A family system is one of them. Like that was like one of the first things I realized when I started talking and like looking into church trauma. Before I looked at the church, I looked at the family because the family is a microcosm of church. Mm -hmm. And so 
Reaching right there. When your your mom and your dad or your grandma or your titis, like whatever, when they're having conversations about you can or cannot do this, or this is or not permissive, or God doesn't like this, or even like, you know, indoctrination around prayer, right? Like you must do this. Like people aren't given options. It's like, why don't you trust God enough to give people options? Because you want control. Like that's what it comes down to. Because you want what? Control. Mm. Controller, my God, controller to like you know fight Drake. Um, <laughs> sorry, y'all. I got I got to. <laughs> hey, I win. But um, <laughs> but that being said, like you, the church. That I, I think that this is like a thing that we have to get to understanding. The church is not just the church. The church is poli- it's political. It's the family system. It's the seminary. It's the actual house of worship. It's the culture. And then mm-hmm. even within that, there are churches, there are Christianities. It's not a monolith. And in me understanding at some point that it wasn't a monolith, I was then able to retrospectively look back and see where the church was good. Because there is goodness. There's goodness to be found. And even in the, the stories of my pain, there still are refuges. You know, I it's still working in that trash ass church that I worked in where a lot of things went wrong. There were the moments where I remember cutting up with my coworkers and us laughing to like tears poured down our faces and like sisterhood. And these are women who still come like if I need them, like this is a, a group of women who will still ride for me, even though I am very, very different than who I used to be back then. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, I used to be super conservative and was a card carrying Republican. <laughs> my God. People change, people change, but like I changed because people were willing to love me into helping me be the fullest version of who I was. That's not who I was at my core and folks saw it and were patient with me, which is where I want to remind folks, including listeners of this podcast, to be patient with others because where you are ain't where you started and don't be in a place where you have such hubris as to where you think you better than somebody because you're not, you're not. Mm. And sometimes we get so healed or so far along in our journeys that we forget that we came from somewhere other than where we currently, like the space we currently occupy or reside. And I never forget who I was. And that's part of also what helps me hold on because I understand that there's something about like getting closer to the gospel that is actually transformative. When we look at the teaching and messaging of Jesus, like for real, for real, and not just what people tell us, right? Because sometimes that's part of the problem is that information about the scriptures is disseminated to us through the filters of other people's limited imaginations. (laughs) Like, but when I got into the text for myself and saw certain things for myself, And I'm like, yo, this Jesus dude was talking about something that could still be done. Mm -hmm. And at some point, my theology started shifting. Like I stopped grounding myself in the death of Christ and like hoping for what comes in the the beyond and worried about what's happening today. Because you know what? Jesus wasn't talking about you not going to be hungry later. He's like, all right, bet. So 5,000 people. What we going to (laughs) do? Ah, y'all got to eat. Y'all are here for the mountainside, right? Like y'all here to hear me speak about like, what is it? The Beatitudes? Something happened in that moment. Like there's a lot of stuff. Jesus talked a lot. Um, It's like, which one of these teachings are we going for? But, but so part of when when Jesus actually, no, 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 no. Like, Like me, I'm terrible at like quoting like scriptures directly, but this is after Jesus hopped off the boat, like whatever, when he was taking his nap. 
Um, so in that story, one of the, the, the coolest thing in Jesus's feeding of the masses is like, we all talk about like the five loaves and the two fishes, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think like there was an actual miracle, right? Where like heavenly, like they dropped them joints in the basket and just like multiply. I think what happened was when Jesus took a nap, because we see things with clarity after we rest, Jesus took a nap, someone came forward. And when seeing the meekness of a child come forward where they, what they had, folks started to share. I think that people already had stuff with them and they're like, oh, bet like this baby gave what they have. Like, all right, so I'll share this. I'll share this. I'll share this. And everybody, I think the miracle was they shared so much. There was an overflow. So I know we talk about the Eucharist and communion happening, like, you know, when Jesus is sitting down with the 12, but it's moments like that. There was a lot, like the the book of Luke tells a lot about Jesus and tables, Jesus and eating. Like there's a whole bunch of work you can do there. But like looking at the life of Jesus showed me, oh, we can live into this differently. And if we're keeping it a buck, Jesus learned how to do what he did through John, because John was the forerunner. But Jesus was like the son of God calls. Like John set the tone. Those first disciples, they were they came from John's camp. Mm-hmm. So John was also called to baptize Jesus. This is why, like, I love this dude so much. It's like, you were, like, called to, like, baptize the son of God. Like, bruh, you was it. Um, but all that all that being said, I can go on and on about this stuff, y'all. Like, this is, like, my, like, nerd out time. I love it. Oh, I, um, yeah, I'm here for it. But that's how I got to the place to answer your question, Sarah, of understanding that there was more is because I, I was past my pain enough to look for more. I was able to look for more in the gospels. I was able mm-hmm. to look more beyond the gospels because the prophetic text, let me tell you, that Old Testament got some stories, y'all. Some of it's of people being, you know, trash ass, sorry, garbage monsters. I try not to call people trash because that encourages discardability and no one's disposable, Come but on, people can recycling. act like you can play in the trash. <laughs> like, yay, garbage. That's me. I hang out here. You can be Oscar the Grouch. Um, and some people are. However, there's also a lot of really redeeming stuff in the the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of people and sometimes they're glossed over because we don't know their names, but like that's also history, right? There's a lot of people, a lot of people just in histories whose names aren't captured because they weren't important to the historian. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, like there are important folks always there who are modeling something different who are living into the gospel of Jesus in ways that are life-giving. And they're the ones who literally feed us, who literally hold us, who visit us in the hospital. They visit us like when we're down and out, like they're there. And I remembered those people. And that's how I got to a place where I'm like, this all doesn't mean need to be thrown away, but we do need to set some shit aflame. That's what's up. Jesus flipped the tables. He didn't burn down the whole temple. We're just trying to and, flip some tables. Yeah. And it's like, Jesus was, his ministry launched in the temple. Like, y'all, he was a product of the temple. He, like, this was, he used the scriptures. He was called, I mean, the, the scriptures themselves say the sum of everything, of the law, of everything he was talking about was calling people back to love. Mm-hmm. Love God, love self, love neighbor. Like, all these things are interconnected. The sum of all the prophets, love, that's it. And so when people weren't loving, when they weren't coming back to that place of love, that's when he's like, all right, I got to turn up on y'all a little bit. Mm-hmm. And at some point, like, and this is like actually one of like low-key, one of my favorite parts of like the gospels, because it's like in different gospel accounts, 
Jesus stops talking to people who were adversarial. He mm-hmm. only gave his energy after, like, after a point to people who were in solidarity with him or in relationship with him. So, like, if you go to like the, the the passion narrative, right? Like this section, like right before the crucifixion, when he's hanging out with Podge's Pilate, I th- I think this is true. Y'all can fact check me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but. In every single gospel account, it shows that Jesus stops talking. So if they were against him, he stopped dealing with them. And we have that power too. If people are coming for us and not trying to be in solidarity with us and not trying to, to lend into our flourishing, especially when we're in the in down and out, we ain't got to deal with them. Mm-hmm. We don't. Jesus mm-hmm. didn't. And that's Christ-like. Mm-hmm. So he stopped talking to them and he talked to the women along the way who were crying. He told them, don't cry. He talked to Mary. He talked to John. He talked to one of the dudes on the cross, but like shaded the other one. Like he only talked to people who were about the flourishing and the care and the commitment to him in a little bit of time he knew he had left. Mm-hmm. And I think we have the, the power and the authority and the agency because that's the first thing that, that these religiously toxic places take from us they tell Mm -hmm. us that we are not our own that we can't make our own decisions and guess what we can because that's what it means to be created in the image of god you have the ability to do things Mm -hmm. the end let's have boundaries Mm -hmm. set boundaries love it alicia i've been i've been loving everything you're saying you you have an amazing story um and I'm 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 trying to like wrap my head around just everything that's happened just in such a short like in the last few years, really. <laughs> and yeah. and also I'm gonna I'm gonna need to to like DM you on Facebook because I need more Darren stories. Uh, we need we need gotcha. more more stuff to like throw out in the middle just in the middle of a of a podcast. Um, <laughs> But I want to I want to circle back. I want to I want to kind of tie a bow on this whole thing. You're talking about about all these initiatives. You're talking about all this different all these different things. Um, how does a leader of any kind, um, but especially especially in a faith community, but really a leader of any kind, how do they get involved in something like make love louder? How do they get involved in in one of these um, initiatives? that that you've put together how how do we make a difference is i guess basically what i'm asking mm-hmm. okay so it's actually two different questions like so it's like how do you get involved in things that exist and how do you make a difference so i'm going to deal with how do you make a difference because i think more people may be able to find themselves in yeah. that first step one do your own work <laughs> like go to therapy repair relationships get rid of relationships go to therapy. And I do understand that therapy sometimes can be, you know, prohibitive, right? Like cost is a thing. Insurance is a thing, but there are things, there are resources that exist and you can find them with the Googles. And even if internet access is something that's limited for you, like you can park up like in a Starbucks, steal their internet. I'm sorry. Like corporations have this stuff for free. Take advantage of it, y'all. 
Like use your phone, use the public library, like use what you got to find the resources that you need for your healing. Because if you try to do the work and actually had a conversation like about this earlier today um, with a, like another justice like worker, if you try to do the work out of a a place of pain, you're only going to perpetuate more pain in the world. Mm -hmm. You cannot do this work well from an unhealed place and not even a place where it's fully healed, right? Because healing is like ongoing, but you gotta be working towards your wellness Otherwise, you're going to perpetuate toxicity. This is why we see so many of these crises, both in the justice world and in the faith world, happen with consistency because people haven't dealt with they shit. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't dealt with like, you know, your bias and bigotry, guess what? You got a hot mic, somebody on here, you calling somebody something you shouldn't have. If you haven't dealt with like, you know, your hubris around, you know, accessing people's bodies, then we're going to hear about a sexual assault scandal. If you haven't, if you don't haven't developed an ethics as a person who is an activist and a leader, guess what? We're going to have questions about whether or not you are embezzling money um, out of your nonprofits to like buy houses. I'm not speaking about anyone specific, but maybe I am. Um, But all of that being said, when you don't do your work, you leave space for people to question you. And when they question you, like, and you don't have the integrity to have a response and say, here is how I have aggrieved X, Y, and Z communities. And here's how I've worked to address those, those grievances. Here is how like X, Y, and Z harmed me. And here's the work that I've done in order to be well. Like you're setting yourself in your communities that you're trying to get in from, for failure. Also like check your motivation for wanting to do something. A lot of people want to be somebody's savior and that's also a real trash way to get involved in something. Like I actually had somebody, God bless her, a white woman on Twitter blocked me after I, she's like, <laughs> this is funny. So basically she came onto my, like, so one of the things that's happening in one of the sects of my world right now is like, there's an over saturation of like diversity and inclusion professionals. Cause you've got like the crap ton of these programs out there where people can like go for anywhere from free to many thousands of dollars and say, I have now mastered diversity and inclusion. I know what I'm talking about. And these, all of these programs are like garbage, right? Because this is like being more inclusive and equitable is something you have to practice. It is not something that can be necessarily be taught in the classroom. But that being what it is, you got these folks who are doing X, Y, Z, whatever. They're taking all these programs. So like one of the women who went through one of these programs found her way into my like Twitter after I've like shared that this is how people were getting into the field. And she's like, but I just want to help people and it's the reason I'm not getting hired because I'm a white woman trying to do this. I was like, no, the reason is that, is that your passion is not a hard skill. And so if you want to just do the work, I'm like, the majority of us are trying to do this out of the goodness of our hearts, but that doesn't mean that we're qualified. <laughs> what qualifications do you have to actually do the work you're trying to do? And she's like, I just, I mean, I'm just so tired of my kids getting shot and the black and brown kids and blah, 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 blah. I was like, sweetheart, <laughs> I didn't call it sweetheart because whatever, like that wasn't, we're not in relationship. But in my head, this is why I'm just like, oh, bless you. Um, I'm like, ma'am, we, <laughs> first of all, you're still rooting this in you. <laughs> Like you're talking about the violence that they're they're experiencing, but you're like, I feel so bad, but you're not the one getting shot. Like, but it's about that you part. right now in this moment. So let's talk about like how 
you have sympathy, but not empathy because you're not displacing yourself um, and then decentering yourself from the conversation. And this is probably why you're not getting a job that you're applying for because people hear you talking about yourself and not about impacted communities. So she blocked me. She didn't like it, <laughs> but she asked and I told her. She should, and asked if she didn't want that no, the answer to the question. But that all being said, like, it's like you got to do your work. You got to check your motivations and you got to approach it with humility because you, there's always something to learn, even if you're an expert in an area, right? But there's, but there's always something you're not an expert in because you don't know every human experience. And that's ultimately the thing that like, that leads, like people have experiences that you do not. And that changes the context and the, the con, it changes the context and the contours of a conversation. So do your work, um, yeah, do your work, check your motivations, be humble. Love it. That's what's oh, up. That's, those, those are three, that, that's, that's the perfect bow on the sermon that we have been getting preached. <laughs> we have been listening to sitting under Alicia's teaching. <laughs> I'll just let me run my mouth for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) We yeah, we need we need to get like a Nord keyboard and just start like playing the sounds underneath. Nord, Nord, (laughs) the red one, yeah, the red one, yeah. You know, Stacy's gonna have like a a drum kit set up and get the cymbals going. No, that's that's the oldest child. That's not me. No, (laughs) Stacy doesn't play drums. I'm I'll fight player. Darren for the keys. Wow. I don't this play keys hilarious. in a useful way. So I'm going to be singing oohs and ahs under the Not oohs and ahs. Uh, y'all, are, y'all are all like terrible but great and I love you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just, wait till, just wait till Darren asks you out for coffee. That's that's when you got to Oh, Lord. <laughs> coffee being the international uh, underhanded way to be like, now you're in trouble. You're either what got did I bad do theology or you're mm-hmm. about to get fired. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, but Darren and I, this is just the thing, like Darren and I, we've known each other for years. We've only had like drinks, drinks and snacks. Yes. <laughs> we've All never had snacks. We have, we have had fruit snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all don't understand how much I love me some Darren Calhoun. Oh. My boo. <laughs> See, and I'm about to send a donation. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> yeah, well, Alicia, thank you again for all your time. Thank you because yeah. I, I have personally, I've learned so much. Um, I've got a couple of great stories about Darren, which is always invaluable. Um, and and like I said, I, I feel I, I feel like I feel like a better I, I feel like I have a better understanding of um, a lot of this work, because for me personally, I'm, um, fairly new in working in advocacy in, in advocacy avenues, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm, um, I was a card carrying Republican up until 2020. So, I mean, if that, if that tells you anything about me, then I welcome. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, And so, yeah, like I mean, it's it's funny what what you were saying right there at the end because, um, in a lot of ways, I am I am teaching and coaching and consulting with other churches and leaders all around mm-hmm. the country now about this sort of thing, mm-hmm. but it's coming out of what what you were saying, just like the goodness of my heart and hey, this is what I know and this is how I think mm-hmm. I can help you out and 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 hopefully it helps. Um, 
so thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom and your care. It's, it's been great talking to you. Uh, and if you're listening, if you're listening right now, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, be sure to share with your friends. That is the greatest compliment you could give us is sending along this episode to, to one or two or 10 friends the more the merrier. Leave us a review. Uh, send us an email with any questions. All of our contact info is in the show notes, as well as our Instagram, our Facebook, and our Twitter at the CLR Podcast. Um, and until next week, we love you. I want to know that story behind this because there's lots of laughter. I just choked on water and I couldn't hit me in time. No. So I'm like trying to break, like, and it triggered my asthma. So I'm like, oh my God. Like, I'm like gagging. And Stacey's in the, in the in the chat like, are you okay? And I'm like trying not to laugh and I'm trying to hit mute at the same time and get humor. So I'm like <laughs> on screen and my face is like all red. I was done for. Anyway. But you made it. You made it to today. I made like, it and I, I, I already just took that inhaler now. Hey, <laughs> okay. That's right. Get that good out of your system. <laughs>